like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is Thursday morning or afternoon, June 24th, the year of our Lord 2021. I'm Josh Pate. It's college football, wall to wall. Didn't have an extra pod on Tuesday because I was out of town. My apologies for reasons that I'll get into more a little bit later on on tonight's show. I know it's imperative that we release a podcast every single time we're supposed to release one. If you claim to not be about an off-season, then you can't be skipping shows just because it's the off-season. And I get it. So my apologies to you. We're making up for it today, though. We got a loaded mailbag. If you want to submit a question, joshpate706 at gmail.com. If you want to hit me up in the DMs on Twitter, Instagram, at LateKickJosh, strongly encourage and outright plead for you to subscribe to both of those platforms, with a third quickly appearing on the horizon. So here's here's what's up right now. There is a lot going on at 24-7 Sports. I'm going to be able to tell you about it soon. I'm sitting in our studio right now. Well, I'm sitting in the office. The studio is off to my immediate right. And some folks from Viacom CBS have to come in here anytime now. They're supposed to be here right now. Hoping I can get this out of the way before they come in. Otherwise, if you hear some clanging and banging in the background, I started all alone, but I may not finish the podcast all alone. I just want all the credit with none of the blame. That's all I've ever wanted in life. So with that out of the way, let's dive in because I think we got some really good questions here this morning. Matthew starts us off. He says, could you talk a little bit more about the dysfunction you've hinted at around Alabama's program in 2017 and why it may have been Nick Saban's greatest achievement to overcome this? Matthew, I think the dysfunction really kicked up in 2018, more so than 17, but it was there. I think that national championship game was one of his best coaching jobs, but we've talked about that a lot. If you think about just the game itself and think about all the things that seem to have gone wrong for Bama in that game, and then you kind of zoom it out and you realize, oh wait, they still won this game? It's pretty crazy. I mean, there's no way Alabama should have won that game. That is Georgia's for the taking. As I've told you before, I was in the press box for the first half of the game. And I remember starting to prepare our stuff. I had to do live coverage for our TV station, actually, on top of my late kick stuff that I was doing there because I was independent at the time with late kick. I was employed by WLTZ. And so myself and our coverage team, Brooke Kirchhofer, who now works down in Baton Rouge, you guys check her out down there. We were in the press box getting our stuff ready and preparing our coverage and different angles we wanted to hit as Georgia has won a national championship. It already appeared that way at halftime. You guys remember how that game went. Bama heads into the locker room. They're shut out. Okay, then you have the big quarterback move. That alone is worth a documentary. That move alone is worth a documentary. Now, you think about that within the context of what I told you about last week when I had been at the Iron Bowl up the Alabama tunnel outside their locker room just a month before that. And remember, I told you a lot of those wide receivers just went off. I mean, they went crazy. They could barely be controlled after that game because they were so irate that Tua had not been given a shot to play in that game that they lost 26-14. And then you think about how that leads to Nick Saban making the decision at halftime of the national title game. They had Makai Brown go crazy, getting a fight on their sideline right there on national TV. They had a guy collapse on the sideline. Kareem McDonald, I think, was the player that just collapsed on the sideline. They didn't know if he was okay or not over there. He had to be taken away. I believe he was okay afterwards, but they didn't know at the time. Then you have what at the time was just the usual disastrous Alabama kicking situation. And so all that is compounded by the fact that you're bringing in a true freshman to get his first meaningful snaps on the biggest stage the sport has to offer and they miss a kick as I said to end the game so then they go to overtime and then they got a second and 26 in overtime and they still win the game that's got to be for Georgia fans like trying to cut the head off a snake that will not sit still that is trying to nail jello to the wall you just can't do it it looks like you've got it and you can't do it so that had to be mind-numbingly frustrating to watch and I live in Georgia I talk to Georgia fans all the time so I know what it was like for those folks. But think about the coaching job Nick Saban did there. I mean, that's a game they're not supposed to win. 
they're not supposed to win that thing, and they won it anyway. So I think I think it really ramped up, Matthew, from a dysfunction perspective next year. They had a lot of coaches that were just totally tuned out the next year, and it was evident really early on and certainly midway through the year. I mean, I think it's a miracle they got to the national title game the next year. Everyone remembers they got blown out by Clemson. I think it's a big deal they even got there. Moving on, Jackson does something. We got a couple of you that did it in this mailbag that I want to encourage all of you to remember to do. I am fascinated by how you listen to the show. I'm fascinated at where you listen to the show. And we get all kinds of, and you know how rarely I use this word, very eclectic responses when I suggest that you tell me where you're listening. So Jackson leads us off and he says, I listen to the show mostly during welding school to keep my mind entertained during what is otherwise very tedious work. So I appreciate that, Jackson. All right, now he continues. My question is, as I am an Alabama fan, I'm very excited to see Nick Saban got an extension. You haven't mentioned it much. Maybe there isn't much to say. What do you think of it? Yeah, Jackson, I really haven't covered it because I don't think there's a lot to say. I think it was a formality. I don't think that that extension changed anything about Nick Saban. I don't think it changed anything about Alabama's perspective on him. I laugh sometimes when people throw around the word retirement with him. Yes, he is in his 70s now. Either he will be or already is 70 this year. But the point is, he's not winding down. If anything, his program is as good as it's ever been. So I don't see I don't see the end anywhere in his near future unless he has somewhere in his mind that he has mapped his own career out, even independent of health, that he's just mapped his own career out and he and his wife and maybe his agent, Jimmy Sexton, and none of the rest of us know, but he's just got this pinpoint on the map of life and I'm going to go to this year and we're not going to tell anyone and it'll just be a big announcement. Independent of that, I don't see anything on the horizon that indicates he's slowing down. Matthew, part two. Second Matthew and three questions here. He says, which surprise team or overachieving team from last year has the best chance to repeat or even build on the success this season? And which of those programs are best suited to maintain that success over the next few years? I think Indiana and Liberty, out of all the teams that kind of surprised folks last year, I'd go Indiana and Liberty. It starts at the quarterback position, obviously. Michael Penix, we hope, will be healthy for Indiana. And by the way, if he is, they're going to be a really tough out. We've gotten used to, in the recent, recent history of college football, thinking about Indiana a little bit differently, maybe putting a little more respect on their name. But that's a team this year, I circled the Indiana game as Ohio State's biggest swing game this year. You could easily make Indiana Penn State's biggest swing game. I mean, they are either going to shock everyone and make the Big Ten title game, or at the very least, they're going to ruin one or two other teams' possibilities of making it to the Big Ten title game. So I'd say Indiana, because they've also really wisely filled out their staff. That coaching staff's one of the more underrated coaching staffs in the country. Not just Tom Allen, but the hires he's made below him, they're not guys that you know. They're not guys that have their name in bright lights on the marquee, but people in the coaching world, people in the football world, they know, and you can look at their recruiting strategy and look up and down their roster at how much of that roster is littered with talent from the state of Florida and from down here in the South. It's not kids that they went head-to-head with Miami and beat, but it's the kids maybe that didn't have spots on that roster. Indiana, now that I think a little bit further about it, Indiana is a perfect example of what I think is not going to be possible much longer. Indiana has come to the South, and they've done this enough. They're not the only program, but they've done the following thing. I'm about to say enough. They've come down here, and they've 
said, we're not going to worry about trying to beat LSU or Alabama for these five-star South Florida kids. We're just going to count on the fact that that state is so talent-rich, it produces too much kids, too many kids, for all those major programs to take. We think we can promise them enough in terms of development and opportunity at Indiana that we can get them up here. And once we get a three-star Florida kid up here, we can develop them to giving us a four-star level performance over the next three or four years. They won't pop as a true freshman, but they'll be able to do it enough. Those kids, once the playoff format changes, and once the money has enhanced the AAC schools and maybe even some of the Sunbelt schools and Conference USA schools to the point where they're on closer to equal footing and they can invest better in their programs, those kids are not going to leave anymore. Your next opportunity, if you can't get a spot at Georgia, Bama, Florida, Florida State, or Miami, is going to be South Florida, is going to be Central Florida, is going to be, I know this is hard to envision right now, but way, way down the road, something like a South Alabama being an option for a mobile kid who maybe right now would go to Michigan State, just pulling the name out of thin air, Pitt, let's say, or Oklahoma State. Well, all of a sudden, those kids aren't coming through that pipeline nearly as often as you used to see. So let me circle back to the question. I think Indiana has a chance to maintain that popability. That's a new word that we just invented right now. I also think Liberty can because of Malik Willis there. Now, they're on everyone's radar, but I don't think it matters. I think they're a very good team. Uh, they got a very good coach there, independent of what you think about Hugh Freeze and his personal life. I don't care. And so uh, they know what they're doing on the football field. So give me Indiana and Liberty as the teams that can have what you would call staying power this year. Up next is Sean. By the way, before we enter this question, I grew up with a kid named Sean, and it was S-E-A-N. But then I had a bunch of other buddies at school named Sean, and every single one of them was S-H-A-W-N. If I ran a poll, because I have no idea what the answer to this is, if I ran a national poll, what is the more popular spelling of Sean? Because I think it may be S-E-A-N, and I think I may have just been around a bunch of S-H Seans. Sean Michaels spelled his first name with an S-H, and that wasn't even his birth name. So he had a choice, and he chose S-H. I don't know what that's worth, but hey, that happened. That's real life, and that's a former, that's former world champion we're talking about there. All right, anyway, so Sean asks questions, what we're really here for. He said, my question is, why do you think offensive coaches like Lincoln Riley get praised for being great play callers and game day coaches, but defensive coaches such as Kirby Smart do not get that same treatment? This, Sean, is a wonderful, wonderful question, and let me delve into it a little bit. We, if you're of any age right now, are products of what is called the highlight era, the sports center era. So highlight culture is very, very persuasive in how you think about sports. So football, for example, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, just any age, you have grown up in the sports center era where your idea of a game happens in your mind in the form of boom, 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 highlights. When you think of, let's say, Penn State versus Michigan 2015, even if you can remember the game right off the top of your head, you remember highlights of the game. You don't start with, and welcome to the big house. We're here today for 4-2 and two Michigan, taking on 3-3 three and three Penn. That's not, it's not like a replay of the broadcast feed starts in your mind and you just sit there for three hours in some kind of weird trance and you replay the whole game. That's not the way your mind works. It works in highlights. Well, how many of you think in terms of defensive highlights? And how many of you, when you've watched SportsCenter over the years, watch defensive highlight packages? You don't. You see offensive highlights. That's what you see. And as a result, you see when defenses screw up. 
you have no idea when a great defensive play call has been made other than if it results in a sack or it results in, you know, some maybe maybe an outside linebacker clogging a passing lane and he picks something off and, you know, the telestrator on the replay has a circle around a guy and look at this guy in perfect position based on this formation. That's great film study, a great defensive call by Kirby Smart. Unless that happens, you only see when defense screws up. But with offense, if Lincoln Riley makes a call and his pocket collapses and he should have had a six-man protection in there and he went five wide instead and an edge rusher just totally collapsed his quarterback before he ever had time to complete his drop and get a pass off, well, they just move on to second down. It's second and 13. You're never going to see the play unless you were watching the game. And even if you were watching the game, you're not going to remember that if on the next play they complete one over the middle for 30-yard gain, first down, move the chains, all's well that ends well. Well, with Kirby Smart and with other defensive coaches, you tend to remember the screw-ups. With offensive coaches, you only remember the highlights. That's just the generation we've been raised in, and maybe maybe that's just the way sports work in general. Maybe it doesn't even matter what your age is. But I'm kind of curious. If anyone else has another take on that, I'm kind of curious what you feel there. I, I think I've pretty well nailed why I would feel that way. Now, I'm not over here hating on defensive coaches, but I do see what you're talking about being very popular. It absolutely is. You never talk about the bad play calling games that offensive coaches had. Or if you do, it's very rare and it's not in the mainstream conversation. It's always in the mainstream conversation when defensive coordinators and defensive coaches blew it on any given Saturday. Braylon up next. Do you foresee a case of another 2010 Auburn or maybe a 2016 Clemson happening in the next few years. I ask because elite quarterback play is now ubiquitous at the top. I'm unsure if a Cam Newton or a Deshaun Watson type of playmaker can push a less talented team to a title right now since the Alabamas of the world also have playmaking quarterbacks. I think the ending there, Braylon, is key. This was happening, that 2010 Cam Newton-Auburn team. That happened inside an SEC where Alabama was still trying to play with Greg McElroy at quarterback. And they had A.J. McCarron coming after that. And so it's not that it was easy for them to do, but it was a lot more possible for them to do. Whereas now, man, all these teams at the top, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, what year are we going to enter a season where they don't have a dynamic threat at quarterback? In the foreseeable future, as long as those programs are at the stature they are, I don't know that it's going to happen. Man, one of the CBS executives is calling me right now. Do I take, hold on a second. Do I take the call? Let's just see how this goes. All right, I'm back. So here's how it went. A lot of privileged information was shared on the call, which it was probably best to not have via speakerphone on the podcast. So I think I made a wise move there. And even if I hadn't made the wise move, I'm about 95% sure in post-production they would have taken it out because it never would have made it past legal. However, since we're not live... I sat back, took a deep breath. It was all good news we got. I just can't share it with you yet. And I took a few bites of the old salad over here. And now I think we're regrouped and we're ready to go. But what I need to do first is I need to remember where I was. So we were talking about 2010 Auburn, 20... Ah, yes, okay. I could easily stop right now and edit that out, but we're not going to. So, Braylon, I think it's a good question, and I think you're right. I do not know that a team could pop like that. Now, I, don't, I do not necessarily equate 2010 Auburn to 2016 Clemson apples to apples. But Elliot pointed something out to me the other day. I think they may have even talked about it over on the Cover 3 podcast that I did not realize. No member of that Auburn offense ever played a down in the NFL other than Cam Newton. He dragged an otherwise lifeless, limp body of an Auburn offense over the finish line and won a national championship. And down south, they get really heated in some of these debates about how good was Cam Newton as a Heisman Trophy winner in comparison to other Heisman Trophy winners. I mean, he's right at the top 
He's right near the top for me because of that. Because I think about this. Cam Newton, if I would have taken him and put him in some high-octane offense, if I would have surrounded him with future first round, I mean, let me just stop that sentence and ask you this. What do you think Cam Newton would have looked like alongside Henry Ruggs and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle and Jerry Judy? How do you think he would have done? Basically, imagine the offense Tua was in, or Mac Jones was in, but then imagine they themselves are 6'6", 245-pound freight trains. How do you think Cam Newton would have done? think he would have done okay. Yeah, I do too. Oh, by the way, have an entire offense offensive line full of first round or second round or third round NFL guys in front of him too and load up the backfield with guys like Najee Harris. Woof. Compare that to what he was playing with. So anyway, no, I don't think it's possible because no, or yes, Braylon, to your point, I think other programs are too good at quarterback. What's the year? Like, where's the year where you're going to be able to thread the needle with only a quarterback and nothing else? You can get through a conference or a division like that, and maybe even you can make the playoff. But once you get in the playoff, it's like recruiting. It's like you can develop your way to nine or ten wins. This is the problem Iowa State has right now. There's probably a lower ceiling on them because even if they get through the Big 12, even if they were to beat Oklahoma, you're only going as far as you can go with development being the key and name of your game. But eventually you're going to come up on other programs that develop really well too. It just so happens they're developing five-star players. Like Alabama is great at development too, but they have the horses from the get-go to develop. Whereas you're hoping to develop over three or four years and squeeze every ounce of potential out of every guy, their starting point is five miles ahead of you. And it's the same with this. You can only go so far with just a quarterback. You better have some other pieces around him. And that's why I think that 2016 Clemson team, while certainly they weren't as fully powerful as they were about to become, they had better pieces around Deshaun Watson than Auburn did around Cam Newton. That's not even really all that close. Got another good question here and another testimonial as to where you're listening to the show. I'm going to go ahead and ask the question. Who do you think deserves to win a title that hadn't won one yet? Who do you think deserves it? I'm going to give you my answer right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Dakota hits us up. He says, I'm a truck driver. I listen to every episode while I'm out on the road. My question is, which program deserves to win a national title? Not based on talent, just more so about me or you saying, it's about time they won it all. Well, I think the answer is Georgia by 100 miles here. But I'm going to go beyond Georgia because it's so common sense that that's the answer. What about Texas A&M? I put this out on Twitter, actually, in the form of a poll earlier today. It was a little bit different context. I said, If I were to come back from the future, if I just popped in your room and I had said, I've been in 2025 over the last week, I saw some interesting things. And among the interesting things I saw is out of Texas A&M and Georgia, one of those programs will win a title by 2025. Who will it be or whomst will it be? And uh, the poll results are surprisingly close right now as to who you think that would be. So Georgia and Texas A&M are good answers. I think Virginia Tech deserves a national championship. I don't think they're at the forefront of the conversation of the nation's elite programs or anything like that, but I think it's a great fan base. There's great tradition up there, phenomenal game day environment. I'd really love to see a program like Virginia Tech win a national championship. I'd love to see Arizona State or Arizona. I'd love to see one of the schools in Arizona win a national championship. Oregon, can you imagine what Oregon would be like? They've been right at the doorstep twice. They've been there in, what, 2011? 
against well 2010 we just talked about that game it was early 2011 when the game happened against Auburn and then they were there again in the first ever college football playoff national title game against Ohio State the only national title game I ever had to turn down credentials for I got approved and had to turn it down because the old sales department couldn't sell coverage for it they tried to pull that again the next year I just went on my own dime so Dakota I'm going to go with a few schools there and you can choose I could keep going I could keep on going Wisconsin love to see Wisconsin win a title I think those are phenomenal fan bases every one of them I just mentioned phenomenal fan bases now we're going to take a deep breath because our good buddy Irish Politico has a question that I can promise 100% of you are going to be emotionally invested in Irish Politico asks well first he makes a statement Irish Politico says I get that blown calls are part of the game here comes the question but why are college refs not made available for press conferences after games to explain their calls? I think it would be great for them and for fan bases who are left to think that their teams got screwed because of some agenda that referees have with conferences, with TV networks. And right now I am shamelessly adding on to Irish Politico's question because he feels this way. I know he does, so he doesn't mind me paraphrasing him. This is a great question, brother. It's a great question for every one of you out there nodding your heads right now. One of you is on your lawnmower down in Louisiana thankful that the rain's finally gone for about two seconds and you can mow your yard, but you're you're nodding your head yes. You're thinking about an LSU game from the year 2018 or whenever it would be, and you're saying, I wish I could get an explanation about why this call was made. And my answer to you is, well, my my rational answer is there is no rationale behind it. There is no logic behind it. Now, there is a reason behind it, and it's not going to come as a big surprise to you that it's to protect officials. And I got a big problem with it. So here's the retort. If I were to have a conference official right now, head of officiating for the SEC or the Big Ten or wherever, if I were to have them on right now, they would tell you, well, listen, we're not going to subject these men and women, our, our esteemed officials, to just a cascade of criticism after these games. After all, here it comes, get ready for it. After all, they're not even full-time salaried employees of the conference. And that's the catch. That's the that's sort of the mechanism. That's the dump button they build in for themselves. These people are not official employees. These people are not folks who hold down a desk job in Birmingham or Indianapolis five days a week and then they go to their game on Saturday. No, they have normal jobs and they just happen to officiate games on Saturdays. They would lead you to believe we're making all these hundreds of millions of dollars, but basically we're a glorified high school association when it comes to the way we handle officials. Now, the, the sure answer here is they could afford to have full-time officials just like the NFL does they could afford that they don't want to have it because they don't want to have to make them available because they don't want to basically fan the flames of what you already hear every Monday morning on every talk show or message board all around the country I am a huge proponent of making officials available at least have them be able to respond to prepared questions well, you don't have to expose them to a throng of, of angry media or anything like that, but have media at the very least available to assemble pool questions where officials respond. And instead of this garbage that you get from the league office 48 hours later, wherein you say, Arkansas, it turns out, did get screwed in a call that ultimately cost them the game, but we're not really going to do anything about it. So I hope our apology is good enough for those of you who have all kinds of escalators in your contracts because of certain numbers of wins you get. Oh, by the way, you're bold. Bowl trip is going to be contingent on how many wins you have. Pride is contingent on how many wins you have. Now we're going to forego all that because, hold on, Tim Watts is calling me from Bama Online. Let's answer this. 
<laughs> update. Yeah, so so Tim Watts is even worse at giving arable content than the CBS executives are. So I can't play you what he said either for his own good. So let's just pretend like that never happened. Let's roll right on here. Irish Politico's question, mainly to remind myself more so than you. This has been a very scatterbrained podcast, but that's just how we are around here. He's asking, why in the world don't we make these officials available? I support making them available. I think it is laughable. I think it's like It's like building a space shuttle that's able to go all the way to the moon, but then putting like off-brand toilet paper in it or something. We have huge mechanisms here. They're called conferences, and they make so much money, and they're so high profile. And think about how big the stakes are. Gambling-related, competition-related on these games, and we're letting them be decided by people who aren't even really focused on this every day of the week, and also they don't have to give an account of their decision-making. What are we really worried about here? Are we worried about an uncomfortable position for an official? Let me tell you something. By the time you're an official on that stage, do you know how many uncomfortable positions you've been in in peewee football games and high school football games? If you ever want to have some fun, find an official and just ask them to give you stories and then shut up, grab yourself something to drink, prop your feet up, and just sit back. Officials have the best stories. But what you'll learn through those stories, these people are more battle-hardened than a Roman soldier. They've been through everything. They can handle it. They're big boys and girls. They can handle someone yelling at them from the 14th row after they blow a call. Or maybe they didn't blow it and someone just thinks they blew a call. You want to feel uncomfortable, though? How about watching the ending of that Auburn-Arkansas game last year and knowing that even in year one with Sam Pittman, you won a game and they took it from you? That's uncomfortable. And by the way, it's there the next morning when you wake up and you got to go to church and you got to put on a brave face in front of all the parishioners and you still feel terrible and then Monday it's still with you and Tuesday it's still with you. I know in the grand scheme of things, there are bigger things in life going on, but we care about this sport a lot. Absolutely we do. So if someone makes such an egregious decision in a game that it costs you an opportunity to win a game or it outright just costs you a game, which doesn't often happen, but it did in that case, yes, yes, you deserve an answer. At the very least, you deserve an answer. And I'm I'm not talking about one that comes via press release 48 hours later that's written by a lawyer. I'm talking about from the stripes themselves. They should tell you what they saw and why they made the call. How about Dylan here? A buddy and I have been arguing about which program is better off, Texas or Florida. They both have had former Urban Meyer assistants, although Tom Herman is now gone at Texas. They recruit well. They both peaked recently with New Year's Six Bowls while losing conference title games recently, too. They were also both excellent in the 2000s. Both have had the same amount of wins this last year. So which program has the brighter future based on where they are right now? This is really tough to say because it's well documented now that people think I hate Florida. Have no clue where it came from. It would be wonderful for me if Florida won a national championship this year. I'd celebrate right along with you guys. But because I guess I tell the truth sometimes on Dan Mullen, you think I hate you. By the way, if you don't like that, I wouldn't tune into tonight's show because I'm going to talk about Dan Mullen tonight. It's going to be positive. To me, it's positive at least. But they're established. You know what you have with Florida. And my point there is we don't know what Texas is going to be. So just because I don't know what Texas is going to be under Sark, I'd rather buy into what's proven and what's a known commodity than buy into what at this point is, I'm not going to say fantasy or illusion, but it's not something I can see yet. I can't see around the corner with Texas. I can see where Florida is. And so I'm going to take Florida. I think they're better positioned. Having said that, this is not a slam dunk answer either way. If I were in a debate setting, I could probably take both sides of this and be very effective, but I'm going to side with Florida right now. All right, we got a pretty loaded late kick live tonight, and I just want to remind you, when I when I asked you guys last week, I think maybe two weeks ago, to get us over 1,500 five-star reviews, 
I haven't been able to tell you thank you yet in person. You haven't heard my voice tell you thank you. Not only did we go over 1,500, I think we're approaching 1,600 now. And that's pretty awesome. Because again, a podcast of our age, this thing's been around just a little over a year, normally isn't anywhere close to that. And we've got a lot of metrics that we've hit that I didn't think we'd hit this quickly. So gives us a lot of confidence for what this season could have in store, the regular season, as it were. But thank you for that. Always appreciate you guys following me on Instagram, at LateKickJosh, Twitter, at LateKickJosh. Want to continue to grow those numbers and subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel while you're at it. Until tonight, for producer Lance, filling in for an again vacationing producer Jordan, I'm Josh Payne. Have yourselves a great rest of your Thursday. I'll see you tonight on Late Kick Live. Until then, God bless.